bitch, please. Oh, bitch, please, my ass. You want a sandwich? Dig that. Oh, hell yeah. She's a bad I'm a black man in a white world. I'm a black man in a white world. If I wasn't a Christian man, I'd probably be kicking in your ass. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the JB's Low Tech Podcast. As usual, I'm coming from the Green Circle Studios inside my man cave. And today, as people have asked or questioned, why don't I get controversial? Your show isn't controversial enough. Well, today we'll solve that issue with today's guests because we're going to touch all the bases and more. Here next on the JB's Low Tech Podcast. In Pennsylvania, a teenage girl that was about to turn 18 was driving her brand new car home when she looked down to check a text message and struck a tree, killing herself and injuring a friend in the car. The average message takes 4.6 seconds to create. Hi, I'm Mike Bryant from Bradshaw and Bryant. Please don't drive while intoxicated or allow your friends and family to do so. No text message or phone call is worth dying for. Find Mike Bryant at minnesotapersonalinjury.com. Minnesotapersonalinjury.com. Mike Bryant, seeking justice for the injured. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the JB's Low Tech Podcast. As I stated earlier, uh, people have stated that I've not been opinionated enough or my guests have not been opinionated enough. Well, that changes today as we're going to touch all the bases with uh, my guest today, Michael Stretch Gelfan, who has an opinion on everything. How you doing, Stretch? I remember JB. One day we were talking about the Gopher Athletics. Do you remember? You know the story I'm going to tell. Sure. Of course, you you uh, you of course or were uh, the linchpin of the athletic department for many years. <laughs> and uh, and I was a critic for many years. I still am. I mean, why right. not? And uh, and I remember I remember one day you were really frustrated when I was going after something, uh, probably the basketball program. <laughs> <laughs> And you said, keep your opinions to yourself. Yeah, I was just thinking of that. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, I'm out of a job if I keep my opinions <laughs> to myself. Yeah, I remember Tony's comment, no opinions, and then Tom going, boy, we're out of business. We have no <laughs> opinions. <laughs> yep, that, um, and actually, my opinion probably on that topic has changed more than you would uh, think, and we'll probably get into a little bit of that. As okay. we continue on, but um, first of all, I'd like my guests to um, 
kind of give an origin story or, or a little background on themselves. And uh, you could probably start with, um, you know, growing up being the son of a newspaper man. Yeah. Well, you know, my, my dad was a sports writer in the, very, uh, in the early 50s. I was born in 1950. So I, I do have a, a memory of my dad on, on a Saturday morning uh, taking me by the hand into the, uh, into the sports department of the St. Paul Pioneer Press and Dispatch. Um, but I, I don't have many memories more. He, the one thing he always told me was, because uh, he, he knew by the time I was 15 or so, it was pretty clear I was going to be a journalist. I had made up my mind. And, uh, and his opinion was, that's great, just don't be a sports writer. <laughs> and, uh, and believe me, I never, ever wanted to be a sports writer. But I wound up being a sports writer um, in, uh, when I was at the Minneapolis Tribune, not the Star Tribune, but the Tribune, mm-hmm. because uh, I was having a good time there, and then uh, someone decided to punish me by putting me on the city hall beat. And uh, I hated the city hall beat. For one thing, I had to get up, like, you know, by 8.30 in the morning, and that was never my strength. I've always had a sleep disorder. And, uh, and after about two years on the city hall beat, I, I just... I just thought, I will do anything, anything to get off this beat. And, uh, and then I learned there was an opening uh, in the sports department for a baseball writer, so I grabbed that, and, uh, and I became a sports writer, disappointing both my dad and myself. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, I, it wasn't the city hall beat, so it was okay. But, but when, I, when I was a baseball writer, I just, uh, and, and, you know, I was famous, of course, for not only haranguing the twins, but for uh, having my life threatened on a daily basis by Rod Carew, who was used to maybe a loftier treatment than I accorded him. Um, but uh, but I, I always intended to stay there for a year or two and then get the hell out of there when I could maybe go back to doing what I liked. So uh, so there was that, uh, that point in my career that... Uh, you know that that a lot of people uh, remember me from that that is people who are elderly remember me from right but uh, but yeah I was all you know I always wanted to be uh, to be a writer uh, and a journalist especially both my parents uh, were 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 writers in their own way my mom wrote some, some children's books but she was a really good writer and um, unfortunately for me I, I had mostly my mom's DNA it seemed which meant of course horrendous depression that, uh, that really just destroyed the family. I grew up in a family that was just crushed by depression and, and drug addiction. And uh, so, uh, so that was kind of the basis, you know, and uh, got, maybe got some kind of control of my own depression when I was in my 30s. But until then, you know, every day was a challenge. So um, they weren't good times, especially. But, uh, but I've always thought that I was among the... Uh, the luckiest unlucky people in the world to have grown up in that family and you know my 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 heritage traces back uh, like a like a lot of um a lot of ashkenazi jews in america they t- it, it traces back to the diaspora in minsk that's where both my grandfathers came from and uh, and the diaspora in minsk was was famous for producing uh, some pretty good writers uh some intellectuals one of which is not me um uh but, but uh, you know, when you came out of when you when your DNA traced there, you you probably were, were reasonably intelligent. You probably suffered from depression, and uh, you probably had uh, horrendous intestinal problems. And uh, I'm three for three. 
So, um, uh, your story for me begs a couple of questions. One, how did your dad become the conscience of a newspaper? <laughs> well, that was his retirement job. My dad loved working for newspapers. He loved the idea of it. He didn't really love being a sports writer that much. You know, there was so much hatred and discrimination in Minneapolis, as you probably know, uh, uh, not just against blacks, but against Jews. Minneapolis was considered to be the, the most anti-Semitic town in the United States. And, uh, and that, that percolated through pretty much everything my dad did. My dad grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, yeah. and which was no place for a tiny little Jew in, uh, in the 19, uh, in 1920s and 30s, you know, um, he, in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, there were probably 15 Ku Klux Klan members for every Jew. Right. And uh, so actually, that's probably more than that. My dad was born in 1922. In 1921, the Klan and, uh, and their allies burned down every black business, home, uh, and, uh, and, and possession of, of black people in Tulsa. It was, uh, one, it was probably the worst race riot ever in America. And so that was kind of the, uh, the that's, that gives you kind of some of the background, the way things were in Tulsa. And that, of course, that hatred extended to Jews. It's just that there weren't that many Jews. But only when my dad was basically just about on his deathbed, he'd had dementia for many years, did he reveal to me that he, uh, when he was in high school, he was, he, was, he was threatened or even beat up virtually every single day by the toe-headed children of Klan members. And, and it really, uh, I mean, my dad was an angry guy, and, and, uh, and he had plenty of reasons to be, you know. And, right. and he, he, he was born angry, and he died angry. And, uh, but he wasn't depressed. It was just the other three of us in my family who were depressed. And uh, so my dad had to kind of be the, the uh, he was the go-to guy. didn't have much choice, you know. And, I mean, I loved my dad, and I had a good relationship with him until he had dementia. But, um I'll tell you, though, those were tough times for him, and and you know, and then he then he winds up going into the army. He winds up being stationed in in uh, in Minneapolis. Uh, that's that's where he met my mother, and that's where he stayed. But it was kind of kind of odd because Minneapolis was more anti-Semitic than than Tulsa was. In Minneapolis, you know, in the, in the 1930s, 40s, when my mom was growing up, um, Minneapolis, you know. Uh, Jews couldn't uh, couldn't live anywhere except in the ghetto. Of course, North Minneapolis was was when I remember when I was a kid. They, when anyone talked about the ghetto, they meant North Minneapolis, and they meant they meant that it was a ghetto for Jews because Jews were there first. They were the first ones to be in the ghetto, and later on, of course, the blacks more or less replaced the Jews there. But you know, um, the the uh, the anti-Semitism, the hatred really uh, scarred the family pretty badly, and not to mention the fact that my mom, on my mom's side of the family, there was a suicide or suicide attempt in just about every branch of the family tree, and she was terribly depressed, and, uh, and it kind of made matters worse that my, that my grandfather, my, my, my mom's dad, was killed by a drunk surgeon when my mom was eight years old. Wow. It was in 1930, and the reason that he was killed by a drunk surgeon was because Jews couldn't go to a real hospital. They wouldn't admit them there. And so she, my, my grandfather, the one I obviously never knew, um, had a bout of appendicitis, and, and he went to a 
some seedy clinic, you know, in the ghetto. Whether the guy was a real doctor or not, or I don't know, but he was drunk and he dropped the scalpel. And that, and I, I mention that because that really kind of hung over the family forever right. and ever. You know, my mom didn't get over that, and um, and uh, you know she didn't really understand. I think how badly she was scarred by that, but it really took its toll on on everybody in the family. When my mom when my mom was on her deathbed, I, I asked her a few questions, knowing that my my time was running out, as was her, you know, to, to, to answer and those questions, ask and answer. And I said to her, Mom, you know, when, um, when do you think you first became really terribly depressed? I mean, I knew that it was on that October day in 1930, but, um, but I wondered what her perspective was. And she said, well, I, I never got over that, that horrible depression that came on after I gave birth to you. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Thanks, Mom. And I, you know, I, when I tell that story, a lot of times people gasp or you know, they're horrified. To me, it was just funny at right. the time. <laughs> because, you know, like I, I knew what was going on there, but I just wanted to know what her perspective was. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's one heck of a story. Now, you know you, you can be blamed for increasing the so-called uh, critical race theory by telling these yeah, nobody really knows yet what it is. My uh, my oldest son uh, is a teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a law degree, but he decided teaching was was his calling, and uh, he he teaches in in, in high schools. But um, uh, he, uh, I asked him about critical race theory, and I said, I said, you know, so do you teach critical race theory? I was just joking, but mm-hmm. he said, he said, well, he said. Uh, I've read about it, but I don't even, not even sure what I know what it is. And he said, this, this idea that you could teach critical race theory to a sixth grader, you know, it's like even, even if it was part of the curriculum, there's, there's no, it would take a very bright uh, high school student, probably a junior or senior, to really understand it. And it would require, you know, hundreds of hours of classroom instruction. So the idea that it's being taught, it's obviously it's not being taught. Right. It's just another, it's just another, you know, another attempt by by uh, politicians to exploit racism. Yeah, to continue the division of people, especially poor right, and that's people. that's of course that's the mainstay, you know, right. of, of the Republican Party is to, is to drive that cleave, and uh, and it extends into even things like. Uh, you know, like the war in Ukraine, which you would think would unite the country, but nothing unites the country anymore. <laughs> I guess not. Um, but, yeah, I have to laugh every time I hear the, the term critical race theory because, um, to me, number one, there is no such thing. And number two, it's right. all is the, teaching of, is, is the teaching of American history yeah. that, that yeah. has disappeared for many decades which is now people are digging up and, and, and rehashing. And your story about Tulsa is one of the facts. You know, it was the, the, the destruction of what they called Black Wall Street. Yeah, and, and was, nobody knew about it. You right. Know? And, and, I mean, my dad grew up in Tulsa. I don't know how much he knew about it, but as you know, it's, it's only something that's been discussed much in this country in the last couple of years. Yeah, and with, the, with that 
telling of that and other, similar stories. Well, number one, you, you, you nailed it. It was the largest race riot in the country. But since it's the reverse of what people think race riots are, nobody talks about it. Right. <clears throat> and also, and uh, have, uh, we have a mutual friend who struggles with this, that the, the telling of these stories make young white uh, people feel bad about themselves, which is like, really? <laughs> and the stories that have been told doesn't make young black and Jewish people feel bad about themselves? <laughs> hey, I, I grew up feeling terrible about myself, but of course it, it might have been the depression that ran through the family. Uh, I think that was probably the, the biggest cause. And, uh, you know, I think, I think if you really don't want people to feel bad about themselves, I think what you need is you need a lot more, uh, a lot more um, mental health uh, attention paid to kids in school. You know, I, it really struck me when, I, when the Minneapolis teachers start, went on strike, and, mm -hmm. and, I, and I read that there were something like 700 students per every counselor. Yeah, that's and these crazy. kids need counseling more than ever before. Yeah, that's 100% true. Um, my dabblings in working in schools and kids coming in school ill-prepared to learn on m many different levels, you know, yeah. violence, hunger, uh, mental health, um, not, not feeling... Uh, Secure, not feeling um, good about themselves at many different levels. Right. Uh, and then you, as a teacher, you're supposed to be able to overcome that and get them ready to learn. I don't know. I don't know how that happens. It's a miracle when it does. Right. Um. So you 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 uh, you mentioned the teacher strike. Um, Beyond the mental health wants, what are your thoughts on it? Well, you know, as we unfortunately, uh, as every year that goes by, the public respects teachers less and less, and uh, and of course it goes again to the culture war. It's, it's unfortunate, but you know, this here again, you have an entire political party that sees a political advantage in demeaning teachers. Because after all, the teachers belong to unions. You know, many of them do. And and uh, Ronald Reagan started it, but I think a, a lot of Republicans feel like they haven't quite ended the war on. Uh, they haven't quite won the war on unions until all unions are destroyed. And so they you know, look what they've done to the post office, which you know, the post office and in schools, those are the largest employers of union uh, people who are you know. Highly, highly valued, they were highly valued in our society. I think many still do highly value them, but, you know, they don't call them, the, 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 those people don't call them public schools anymore. They call them government schools. It's, uh, it's a crime against humanity to demean teachers like that. No, no teacher ever expects to get rich. Uh, they, they just expect to earn a living wage. That, yeah, that is, if they're lucky enough to be able to belong to a union. If not, we've seen what happens in states like, like Oklahoma and other southern states where teachers have to have two or three jobs just to survive. And you don't think that affects their ability to teach? 
Yeah, well, of course it does. And Well, when you have a teacher that goes and works at night, <clears throat> are they prepared to deal with kids who are hungry and tired and right. angry and go down the list? And I think uh, we, I think, you know, on a, on a, on a really a, a macro perspective of this is that everything we do, everything we, we, we believe that we cherish goes back to the Socratic method. You know, it's about questioning. It's about challenging authority, challenging the, uh, the common denominators, challenging the, you know, the things that people take for granted. You don't. You don't learn, you don't advance a culture without, without some kind of clash. You know, anthropologists, you know, always say that no progress begins without the clash of cultures. And, and we demean teaching, we demean the Socratic method. The Socratic method is the basis for our educational system when it's right. It's the basis for our economy when it's right. It's the basis for our, our, uh, our political system, which is obviously not right. Um, <laughs> But ideally, those are the things that democracy used to cherish, and it's, they're the reasons democracy flourished for so many years, and, and they're the, with obviously some horrific, horrific exceptions, but at least, at least it kind of worked. And now democracy doesn't work at all because it, we don't respect those, those values. It, it's, it's odd because I have a list of uh, subjects that we might touch and in one, one word, I wrote down to democracy because I wanted to hear what, you, what your thoughts were. And I think we're starting to get the beginning of that. Do you have any further comments on where the hell that is in, the, in this country this, in these times? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a sad state, isn't it? <laughs> and uh, in the last, the last uh, five-plus years of, uh, certainly in my lengthy lifetime, you know, have have really been uh, the worst years for democracy. And, and I don't, I've never seen democracy torn down the way it has been torn down in the last five years, when the simplest of truth is now subjected to the most horrific of lies. I don't know how we get out of this thing, J.B. I, I don't know how you feel, but I don't, I don't, I don't know what the way out is. Well, it was just, it was, uh, you know, January 6th of last year was, <laughs> it was very odd to see, but in some ways very predictable. I mean, yeah, the man left breadcrumbs of what he was going to do. Right. Right. And, and I guess we didn't take it quite seriously enough. Everybody knew, I mean, he was asked, well, if you, if you lose the election, you know, will you accept that? Well, actually what he was asked was, you know, will you will you accept the results of the election? He said, "Yeah, I will if I win." <laughs> yeah. That alone should have excluded him from any sort of legitimacy and should have tanked any kind of aspirations he had to the presidency and let alone the presidency again. But it didn't. You know, the fact that so many people rallied around and they're still rallying around him, despite the fact that almost everything he's ever said is a lie. Uh, it doesn't speak well for what we call democracy. Well, it's just odd that the <laughs> the, the greatest uh, photo in my mind is him standing in front of that church holding the Bible, 
upside down. Holding the Bible upside down. <laughs> and not being able, and I'm not the the most religious person in the world, but I think if I if I tried hard enough, I could quote something from the Bible. <laughs> yeah, anything. <laughs> no, he was. I remember when he was asked. Uh, this was before the first uh, the first time that he that he almost won the election, um, and sort of did. And uh, remember, he was asked. He he, he was asked um, what his favorite book was. Well, you know, that was tough for him. I mean, there's no evidence he's ever read a book. Right. He hasn't. We know he didn't read his own book, because the actual author of the book, the you know, the art of the deal, said, you know, he he never read the book. He doesn't has no idea what's in the book. But um, but he kind of he he, he kind of stammered and he said, uh, you know, it's just uh, it's so personal. You know, I just I just I just I can't really single out one thing, but it's such a personal uh, subject for me. You know, I mean, I don't. I I think to this day, I doubt. I doubt he knows that there was there were actually a, a, an old and new testament. To me, that would have been enough. If if he just said, "Well, I you know I really like the new testament," then that would have been enough for me. Right. I didn't expect him to talk about you know Genesis or Exodus or Leviticus or whatever you know. Well, I just I find it odd that the people bought the act when. He literally stated before many years before he ran on 60 Minutes that if he ran <laughs> as a politician, he would run as a Republican because they're stupid. <laughs> just, yeah, and they voted for him. Right. And it's like, okay, this man literally called you stupid. But you know, the, the one thing, the one thing that's been a little bit encouraging lately, and unfortunately it's it's coming out of the, the slaughter in Ukraine, is that for a while there, uh, we've seen democracy make a little comeback. Uh, at least, you know, people, people, have, people have rallied around the, the, the Ukraine for the most part. And when, when people like Trump and, uh, and Tucker Carlson uh, decided that they, uh, they really were kind of on the side of the Russians, um, there really was a blowback, and they and I don't know about Trump as much, but you know, Tucker Carlson, who is the face of white nationalism, even he had to walk it back just a little bit. But you know, they were toying. It wasn't just them; it was a lot of a lot of certainly a lot of the Fox News people who were enslaved and still are to Tucker Carlson. They were right there. Yeah, yeah. You know, those Russians, uh, Putin. He's a smart guy, and and it turned out it wasn't cool to say that. Right. Who knew? But it wasn't cool to say that, and I think people have begun to see the the, uh, the merits of of a, of a democracy, even though we don't really have the foundation of it much anymore. So where do we go from here? Your thoughts? I mean, but, yeah. I mean, I think people know by now that you are what they would consider a staunch liberal, but. Yeah, I'm I'm a liberal and, and I always have been, but but I will say this, you know, I I have vo- I I voted for Republicans many years ago, um, and I could especially like in local legislative races, I, I voted for Republicans fairly often because I liked them and I, and I thought that even though I they, I was to the left of them that they would that they do or they would do a good job, 
But I haven't been able to do that for so long because the because the the moderate Republicans who don't exist anymore. But they were they were literally just kicked out of the party, and I mean literally, they were basically just right. told, "No, you don't, you don't, you can't belong to the Republican Party anymore." People like Arne Carlson, mm-hmm. the Republican who was governor, and he was, you know, he was definitely a conservative, but he was certainly on the moderate side of the Republican Party. Nope, you can't come to our conventions anymore. You're done here. You know, David Durenberger, certainly a no lefty. Yep. No, no place for you. Sorry, you know, uh, Ramstead. Um, no, you know, sorry, you, you, you just, there's no place for you anymore. So, how do I vote for one a Republican now? I, I, I don't. I can't. Well, it's just for me. It's just interesting to to see the party fight amongst itself, and and um, and and they base and the. And the majority now base things on solely on one thing, or you know, it could be taxes, or it could be you know, uh, religion, it could be abortion, it could, but they don't take a, a you know, holistic look at anything. It's just like, well, it's 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 one thing for me, and that's enough, and that to me, well, that's yeah. just crazy. And it's it's most of it is part of the culture war because it seems to be what works. Um, and then the other thing is just the, this idea that really at the heart of it is the fact that that the richest people in the country shouldn't have to pay taxes, and the richer you are, the the you know the less taxes you should have to pay, which kind of doesn't make sense, you know, because if if rich people don't pay taxes, uh, they're the ones with the money, you know. Right. And you, you've got, like, the, the upper 1%, the, the richest 1% in the country, you know, they, they, they own more wealth than the bottom 90%. So where's it going to come from? And now, now you've got, you know, this, this, of course, is the Florida governor, Rick Scott. And, you know, in Florida, all politicians are, you know, are, are basically, you know, unfit to breathe my air and yours. Um, yeah, they're all nuts, and he he wants he says no. Everybody has to pay taxes. You know, we have to tax the the poorest people. Well, sure, the richest too, but the poorest. You know, and this, these are the guys who want to have like a flat tax, right? Which is of course absolutely absurd. It, poor people don't have any money to pay taxes. We've stripped them of all their belongings. Yeah, that's that's true. But I just find it odd that they which they build that whole thought on and it would um and then get the the poorest <laughs> some of the poorest of the poor to agree to it yeah that yeah you you know you're right about that people will vote against their best interests and that's i think we we need a lot of psychologists to try to figure that one out well and you know and I'm not going to be blind to the fact that you know the Democrats also probably tax us way too much. Oh yeah, yeah. No, no but, question. But it's not yeah. a single, it's not a single item thing for me. You know, because no. pe- people ask me, well, you know, the Dixiecrats were the ones who were for segregation and this, that, and the other, and it's like, yeah. <laughs> but uh, that kind of seemed to have changed these days, and they don't get to. They, somehow they don't see that. 
No. No, they they really don't, and uh, probably probably not going to either. Well, and then my other question about your newspaper days, what was it about the City Hall beat that makes you wanted to get the hell away from it so badly? It just it wasn't, even though I majored in political science, um, what I always enjoyed was doing stories about about people and um and I don't mean that in any kind of sentimental way, but it's just that people are more interesting than 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 politics when you when at least when you're writing about them and I had such a great time when I started out you know I started out at the wall street journal and um and I enjoyed working there, but it was kind of boring. I needed the action i'm I'm an a d h d guy and i I throw that in with clinical depression and and uh, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder. So my brain's going at you know either either not at all or at about a hundred miles an hour. But I needed the action and and uh, being able to be a general assignment reporter and getting good assignments. I was always always able to write about things that I that I just like to write about. Uh, my my theory in life. Uh, you know I'm working on a, on a book. I have been for several years. It's a memoir. And and my strategy has always been, you know, that you, you come for the laughter and you stay for the tears. It's kind of like life, you know. And uh, and I wasn't getting a, enough of that from politics. It's too much, too much about laws. It's too much about about uh, institutions. And uh, and when I did when I did write the, the the one thing that's always true, whether I was covering politics, sports, whatever, the the better the story, the more important the story the more I got harassed. So that never that never changes. If you're doing your job, a lot of people, as a reporter, typically a lot of people are going to hate you. That's that's my philosophy. Well, that's because then you're probably telling the, the, the whole story, and each side has an axe to grind, and so when they see the negative part of what they, <laughs> or the part that they deem negative, they get mad at you. No matter nine tenths of the story they agree with, it's just that one yeah. tenth that they they get mad at you about, and then you know you become public enemy number one. So I, I was uh, I was covering the twins, and uh, you know my philosophy covering the twins was it was just a human interest story. You know, games were fun to write about because I didn't care for the most part. It didn't matter to me who who hit who 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 batted in the winning run or whatever, you know. It was just the stories within a game that were good feature stories. You can't do that anymore if you're covering sports because now you got to talk about analytics and all that other crap. But but I just had fun. and uh, But I used to, I kind of made fun of the Twins a lot because um, they were, when I was covering them, they were they were really pretty awful for the most part. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and people get very upset. It's funny how what people get upset about. You know, I I covered the Twins one year. They the Twins kind of sort of had a legacy of this, you know, being very slow afoot. And uh, and so I I mentioned that um, it, it was it was just after the Kentucky Derby, and I said that when a when a, a Twins player tries to steal a base, it's the most exciting two minutes in sports. And I was like, I was getting like hate letters for that. The guy, this guy calls me up. I'm in the phone book at that time. Um, right. You got to remember, this is this. Everybody was in the phone book in the 70s, right? Correct. 
the guy calls me up I, at home. He says, uh, "He says, are, are you the are you the Galfano writes for the writes for the Twins?" People, this is one of the weird thing I never understood. I covered the Twins, the Tribune. The people would say, "You know, you write for the Twins, right?" No, I don't write for the goddamn Twins. I write for you. I write for the subscribers. You're Galfano, right? You, you know. You're the guy who wrote that story today, and I said, "Oh no, no, I get mistaken all the time. That, that's another Mike Hill." And the guy says, "Wait a minute now. So, so you're not the guy who wrote that story in the in the in the in the Tribune today about the twins?" And I said, "Nope, no, no, I, I, you know, it's just some other guy with the same name." And he, there's like a pause. He doesn't know where to go with this. He stammers, and finally he says, "What well, did you read that goddamn story he wrote today?" <laughs> <laughs> so what was your response? <laughs> I said, no, no, I don't subscribe. <laughs> People are gullible. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, do you mind if I take a commercial break and then we can, <laughs> can kind of continue on with no, this? Fine. All right. We'll be back with more stories and more antidotes from, from Mike Gale fan. Here on the JB's Low Tech Podcast. And oh, by the way, the reason why it's called Low Tech uh, Stretch, <laughs> I have to ask you to be quiet during the commercial because I have no way of <laughs> muting you without mu- <laughs> muting the commercial. Okay. <laughs> so that's why it's Low Tech. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll keep that in mind. I'm glad you told me that. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a blessing and a curse. I'm putting myself on mute right now. All right, thank you. <laughs> when you need someone to listen, a lawyer you know and trust. Congratulations to all the Minnesota businesses that scraped through the last year. It sure hasn't been easy, but we've done it together. And while we certainly need to move forward, it's good to reflect on what we've been through and the many losses. Here at Bradshaw and Bryant, we held a lot of Zoom meetings, increased our phone calls, and have done our best to keep up with all the changes while continuing to provide quality work. We'd like to thank everyone that turned to us with their personal injury and criminal needs, as well as the courtrooms for bringing the community back together to serve justice. We look forward to being part of Minnesota's growth and success for many years to come. I'm Mike Bryant from Bradshaw and Bryant. I hope you're never injured in a collision, but if you are, don't sign anything till you've taught. To us. Find Bradshaw and Bryant, personal injury attorneys at minnesotapersonalinjury.com. Seeking justice for the injured. Bradshaw and Bryant. What? What? Say you're all us for Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the JV's Low Tech Podcast. As usual, I'd like to thank Mike Bryant uh, for being a sponsor of the show and uh, thank Mike Stretch Gelfan uh, for being a guest today. So <laughs> we'll pick back up where we were. Um, we were kind of talking about writing for the twins and the, um, 
and the uh, the mind of a sports fan. And where do you think today's mind of a sports fan is? Because I'm going to be honest with you. Are you there? Yeah. Okay. I'm unmuted now. Okay. (laughs) Most of my life I have been. (laughs) That's true. It's hard for me to hold sports conversations with um, with today's sports fan because they have absolutely no idea what the heck they're talking about. (laughs) They, They can quote stats and they can hit you with emotional takes. They have no idea yeah, what no they question. right. They have no idea what they watch and what actually happens. Yep, I, I think that's probably true. And uh, people don't really—they've been trained not to believe what they see anyway, you know, because that's not considered relevant anymore. It's it's now it's now about this you know this alphabet soup of analytics, so some of which are so absurd that it's, it's almost embarrassing. Yeah, when I, when I hear a sports person either start their uh, their broadcast with either analytics or the question of who you got or who's on your uh, Mount Rushmore or just dumb questions like that, I instantly change the channel because it means yeah. to me they don't have anything to talk about or they don't know what they're talking about. No, I, I, I would agree. And some of these analytics are... Just on the face of it, any, anyone with a little common sense would know how stupid they are. But people still, they buy into it. You know, there's like B-A-B-I-P, which means that, well, and the people who, who go around quoting B-A-B-I-P are people who don't actually, um, they, they refuse to believe what they see. It, it basically means that if you don't hit a home run and if you don't strike out and if you, if you put the ball in play, then a hit, any hit you get when you actually put the ball in play is just a fluke. It doesn't count. If it's not a home run, it doesn't count. Right. And, and so these are the people who would go around saying, you know that Max Kepler, he's just unlucky because you know, his B-A-B-A-I-P you know, tells us that he's putting the ball in play a lot, but he's just not lucky because it, it, he's, he's not actually, you know, he's not actually getting getting hits, uh, and he should get hit more often than he does. And it completely ignored the fact that all the guy ever did was hit the ball as hard as he could down the first baseline. And that, at some point, the defenders figured out if they just stand there right on the chalk, he's going to hit it to them. So but, but for years, they said, oh, oh that Kepler, he's, you know, he's going to break out. Well, you know, he's, he's, this is an example of a guy who has done everything he could to play his way out of baseball, but he still hasn't succeeded. Right. Well, what are your thoughts on the new bargaining agreement, which part of that is in 2023? Right. I know where you're going here. <laughs> the shifts. Yeah. The shifts will um, go away. Yeah, well, when the shift goes away, I go away. <laughs> Do you? Yeah. I think that's that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. The idea that because batters don't have and aren't taught the skill of doing anything except trying to jerk home runs down the down the ball line. You know, the ideal thing for a lefty, especially because lefties are the guys who suffer the most from the shift. But there was a time when lefties, a lot of lefties, knew how to hit to the opposite field. Now, people just want home run derbies. So now it's unfair for the shortstop to play on the right side of second when 
when a lefty's up. That's no, well, that's so unfair. No, what's what's unfair, I guess, is that the the lefty hasn't been taught to play the, hasn't been taught to play baseball if he can't hit it to the left side of the field. Uh, baseball needs more balls put in play. Mm-hmm. Every year there are fewer balls put in play. And, and that's one of the things that's hurting baseball more than anything else. You sit there and you watch, and it's strikeout, strikeout, walk, strikeout, strikeout, home run, strikeout. You know, I, I don't know who's having fun watching this. Well, there's, there's a whole generation that's basically told baseball they're done with them because of that. Right, right, exactly. And baseball obviously doesn't, hasn't figured that out if what they want is fewer balls put in play. Yeah, it's definitely they're rewarding... They're re- rewarding two people, pitchers who can strike people out and the guys yeah. who can hit home runs, no matter how many strikeouts they have. And I, I, I've always loved baseball. It was always the sport I loved. And I can watch three, four innings now. And then, you know, I look up and two hours have elapsed. And I've watched four innings and I've watched three pitchers, pitcher changes, 28 strikeouts in the game, you know, and, and it's, who, who wants to see that? That is not baseball. That's not what baseball was ever intended to be. If you look at the rules of baseball, it was intended to be a sport in which the ball was put in play, in which there was action, close plays at every base, guys actually stealing bases. All that's gone from the game, and the only way you can make the game worse now is to ban the shit. Well, I... I guess I'm kind of weird because I don't like the shift, but I do want the ball in play more. And right. I also want pitchers, and I guess this will happen in 2023 also. <laughs> There'll be a pitch clock. The, the yeah. one game that sold itself for not having a clock will now have a clock. Be- well, you know, I mean, within reason, yeah. Right. There, there, there has to be there has to be a, a, a moderate stance somewhere there. I mean, I, there are certain pitchers in baseball, like I'll, I'll, I, might, I might be flipping around the dial, I'll see a game, and like in the last few years, I'd see David Price pitching. Mm-hmm. Immediately go to another channel. It's going to take, take him, you know, three hours all by himself if he goes nine innings. Well, fortunately, he never did, but still, it's just torture watching a guy like that out there. Yeah, it's just like, like the batters, you know, I covered batters. Like Mike Hargrove was an example. Some people may still have heard of him. You know, we used to call him the human rain delay. Right. This guy, he'd, he'd and, but there's a lot of guys like this now. Like, like look at uh, Luis Arias for the Twins. He, he, uh, he swings, he misses. Goes out of the strike, goes out of, and then he dances first. Mm-hmm. He jumps up in the air, does a little dance. Then he does a 360 around home plate. Then he has to, of course, adjust his batting gloves. You know, you have to adjust your batting gloves between every plate. Even if you don't swing, you have to adjust your batting gloves. Then he has to adjust the batting gloves. Then, of course, usually there's the sign of the cross. For You know, most players like to do that. Then he steps in again. I've just watched this happen for, uh, it seems like an hour, but it's probably 90 seconds. But... That's, you add that adds up to a lot of 90 seconds. So it has to be the player too. The player, the batter should be given at most about 15 seconds to be ready to hit. And that even seems like way too much. 
Right. Well, I mean, I coach baseball for many, many mm-hmm. years. Kids instinctively don't do that. Right. They basically have to be taught to do it or learn to do it. Well, and, and I will have to say that they are, from my knowledge, <laughs> working college baseball. Uh, you know, collect yourself, uh, get your mind in the right frame uh, of thought. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Calm down. It's a thinking man's game and all these things and, you know, get yourself ready to hit. If you're not ready to hit by the time you step in the yeah. <laughs> step in the batter's box, you're not going to hit. You know, I, I coached Little League for about 10 years, and I watched all these rival coaches, you know, yelling to the kid, all right, Jimmy, focus, 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 Jimmy, concentrate. If there's one way to get a kid not to focus or concentrate, it's to tell him to focus and concentrate. Yeah. And I'm not sure that changes when, when the batter is an adult, you know. I, what I used to do was I used to tell my kids bizarre stories before the game, <laughs> stories that clearly were not true, at least to me they were pretty clear. But yeah. a, lot of times, a lot of times they would either believe it or they'd just go along with it. And by the time the game started, these kids were not thinking at all about baseball. And they were so loose and so ready to go. And I think it's one reason why um, my teams did pretty well. I, uh, I'll give you an example. One day we were, uh, we were playing. Uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a big game. It was the championship. The championship was at stake. We were playing the Rotary Club. Fine organization. Glad they sponsored the team. But I, I, I told my kids hey, about halfway through batting practice, I said, that's fine. You don't need to hit. You don't need to hit anymore. Um, uh, you know, just that whole pregame ritual. Well, we don't need that. So I gathered my kids around, and I said, I want to tell you a story about my grandfather. My, my grandpa Jack came to this country from Russia in about 1904, and which was true. A lot of the story was true. And I said, and he, uh, you know, he never really learned to speak English. Uh, Great. He, he he always had that Russian accent, and uh, and sometimes people would would mock him or make fun of him, which was very sad. And he never really felt like he was, you know, he had, he had a he, he ran a he ran a pawn shop downtown Tulsa. He never really felt though that he was accepted by his fellow uh, businessmen. And it, one day he said to himself, you know, I know how I'm going to get accepted. I'm going to be one of the guys. I'm going to join the Rotary Club, and uh, and I and I said uh, so. That night he went to the Rotary Club meeting, and uh, as the meeting was winding up, he raised his hand and he said in his Russian accent, "I would like to join the Rotary Club." Well, they laughed at him. They mocked him. They mocked his accent. This, of course, was not true. Um, and I said. Uh, and it, it broke his heart. It just absolutely broke his heart. And, and these kids, by the way, were like 10-year-olds. Mm-hmm. And I said, um, and, you know, to his dying day, him. in fact, uh, I was there in the hospital room. He was on his deathbed. He called me over. He could barely talk. He whispered in my ear. And the final words he spoke to me were, get that damn rotary car. <laughs> and I paused for a second, and I said, gentlemen, Get that damn rotary club. 
the kids are looking around like, like what is this? What was that, you know? Thank God the parents couldn't hear me. Right. <laughs> and uh, kids went out there, so they scored like six runs in the first inning. They were so loose. <laughs> that was a football speech for a baseball team. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, I, 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 uh, it was, this is another season. It was the op- opening day. Now, this season, we were, we were sponsored, our teams were sponsored by Irv's Lawn Repair Shop. Okay. And, uh, you know, no, we didn't necessarily get the big time, you know, we, we didn't get like Honeywell or 3M to sponsor our team. Right. It was local business. It didn't cost much. Nobody knew who Irv was. Um, and uh, so I called the kids together. They were you know, always on edge opening day. And I said, guys, uh, yeah, I just want to say a few words. Uh, oh, 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 look, look up there. Here, that's Irv. That's Irv, guys. He's coming over here. Uh, you know, and I said, uh, let's give him a big hand, Irv. He's our sponsor. And, and of course, so Irv was actually my, my friend, Bob Lundegaard, <laughs> one of the best journalists I've ever known. And Bob had a flair for He was a pretty good actor. Mm-hmm. Bob walks, in, walks up. He's, uh, he's, he's wearing a glove over his right hand. And, uh, and he says, Kedge, you know, this is one of the greatest days of your life, opening day. There's nothing like it. You know, and you're all there. So lucky to be playing baseball," he said. "You know, I got to tell you a story. I was a pretty good player myself, and I was moving up through the minor leagues. It looked like I was about to make the major leagues, but we didn't make the money in those days that guys make today." And he said, "I had to, I had to, to mow lawns in the off season down in Florida, you know, just to survive." And he said, uh, "And just when it looked like my big break was coming, well, I made a mistake. I reached in and I lost two fingers." And he, and he shows, and he's got like you know, he's got like a, a couple fingers, you know, tucked tucked in mm-hmm. to his to his palm. And he says, "Yeah," he said, "There I was, a major league catcher, and the only pitch I could call for was the fastball." <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, God, I wish I had this on video. <laughs> and uh, so I went through with the speech, you know, and, and then Irv walked away. And, Kids were just totally, like, confused. And finally, there was one kid on the team, besides my son, my youngest son, Sam, who was kind of, like, fighting a smile. Um, and there was this other kid. He was pretty bright. And after this pause, he said, you know, I don't even think that was her. <laughs> bright kid. <laughs> bright kid, yeah. He figured it out, yeah. I said nothing. <laughs> So, um, outside of the terrible hitting and the take-forever pitching, what else is wrong with baseball? Well, I think that um, that the, the, the advent of the, of the opener and basically, you know, the, 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 the seven-pitcher standard, mm-hmm. um, which is really a horrible thing. Uh, you know, and it's it's all based. It's and, and it, of course the reason for it is that every pitcher has to be able to throw 100 miles an hour. You you can't get drafted if you can't throw in the upper 90s by the time you're 17. You know, and and these guys burn out and they, you can't you can't sustain 
a game, let alone a career, throwing it. Uh, that you know, now these now these kids actually you know they actually have the um, the the the, uh, the rotor cuff surgery mm-hmm. uh, prophylactically. You know, it's just done as a preventative. That that's wrong. And I think that I think baseball they kind of started to make a little tiny move in, in the right direction. You know, when they when they at least said, well, you you know, if you start any, you got to face at least three pitchers, three hitters. But um, I, I just I think there ought to be a limit to how many pitchers you can use. In the game. Yeah, <clears throat> I agree with that. But the one thing that it's taken away is the luster on knowing who the starting pitchers were for that day. Yeah, right. And looking forward to Gibson versus Koufax. Carlton versus Marshall. People, you know, you know, games like that. You know, kids now, they have yeah. no clue who the starter is in most cases. So did you see this phenomenon in, in college baseball when you were over at the athletic department at the U? Did I? Was it there? Yeah, uh, was it, it, no, there was always like the Friday starter. Mm-hmm. And kids worked to be the Friday starter because if you got to be the Friday starter, which was the guy that opened the three-game weekend series or whatever, sure. that meant that you probably had a chance to to uh, make it to the major leagues or at least be drafted. So uh-huh. they did at least build kids to fight for that position. And if you weren't the the you know the Friday starter, then you. You wanted to be the Saturday starter. You know, you were a heartbeat away. And if you weren't the Saturday, then you were the Sunday, which meant you were still good enough to start. You know, you weren't one of the 12 guys in the 12-plus guys in the bullpen. that, Or you weren't a, you know, a Tuesday, Wednesday starter who pitched against, you know, Augsburg or St. <laughs> John. Yeah. Oh, my God, Augsburg. Yeah. <laughs> Not Augsburg. <laughs> You know, and it's, in some ways that was you kind of your first step to maybe building to being a weekend starter, but you know, but here no. you are and you're a junior and you're still pitching against uh, Augsburg or, or you know Concordia Moorhead or whatever. You kind of got the uh, the figure that eh, things aren't going to go the way I want yeah. them to go. So, so let me ask you a question, not. About the U, but not about baseball. Um, do you think that we'll ever see a, a Gopher basketball team, at least, well, I should say in my lifetime, which may not be that long from now, but do, do you think we'll ever see the Gopher basketball team become competitive? Um, and I have to be careful with this because I don't want my heart to overrule my head, and you know I can do that with the best of them. From no, our football wrong pick, with that. <laughs> from our football pick day. But I truly, I kind of believe that uh, Ben has the making and the, and the start of being able to retain kids from this area, which, believe it or not, is right. a basketball hot pit. You're right. You, you wouldn't necessarily know it unless you follow college basketball pretty carefully and you, you know, you see guys like Suggs and, um, 
well, you know, the, the, the five-star guys, right. the Gophers are a long ways from getting. Right, this Chet, what's his name? Chet Holmgren, Holmgren yeah. yeah. Chet Holmgren, and, you know, obviously that, that they're not in play at the moment, but we had a coach for eight years who, if anything, seemed to do worse every year, and every year he got a bonus for doing really <laughs> badly. And that's one of the worst things. That's probably, to me, the, the worst indignity. And, I, of course, I'm, I'm a proud alumnus of the U, but I'm mostly proud of the, the fact that they do a pretty good job teaching. Uh, I'm not, you know, not, as much as I love sports, I, as you know, I, I, would, I would rather see the athletic department just disbanded. But, but that's an extreme yeah. view, but, but that's my view, because I, think, I don't think it has anything to do with the purpose of the university. But... Um, but you know, the, the, I don't. I don't think that. I don't think that uh, that little Richard ever uh, made any attempt to to uh, even even get in touch with people like like Suggs and, I, and all the other great players from Minnesota. You see, I mean, look, you got you got a Minnesota guy now who's uh, who's uh, playing for uh, for Duke. You got a right. Minnesota guy who's who's uh, of course. Uh, playing for Gonzaga, Holmgren, who's going to be among the first three drafted over at Wisconsin. You've got, what, three guys from Minnesota in the mm-hmm. starting lineup? And yeah, won. and one of, them's, one of them's been, you know, been their point guard for like five years. Yeah, and they and they won the regular season Big Ten title. And, yeah. And, you know, they may win the conference title, uh, tournament title. Um, so now we got a Minnesota guy, though, who's who's coaching. Right. And that, to me, that bodes well. Yeah, and who has connections? Who has not ticked off the high school coaches? You know, who who, yeah. who gets along with those guys? Which you know, Richard. That was the first thing Lil Richard did. <laughs> Tick well, off yeah. the high school coaches. And it's like, what are we? What is he doing? What are we doing here? No, he he basically he he would rather he would rather just you know just just recruit some. Juco transfer from Texas, than even have coffee with with the parents of a of a five star recruit from Minnesota. Well, Jalen Suggs stated that Richard yes. never really recruited. I, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> it's like what? What was it exactly that he said? Remind me of that. Oh, he said if. He said, "If Richard would have paid uh, as much attention to me as um, PJ did, I'd probably be—I probably would have been a gopher." Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> well, P- I remember—I I remember he was—it shocked me because he was—he was so frank, but he didn't have any reason not to be candid right. because he was going to be a one-and-done guy, and he's playing yeah. in the NBA now, and he's really good. And I remember he said, uh, he, they asked him about, uh, a local reporter asked him about, you know, going, going, going to uh, Gonzaga and not here. And, uh, and he, said, uh, he said, well, you know, they got some good things going on in Minnesota. He said, that, that football program's really coming along, but, boy, that basketball program's a mess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and still they gave the guy an extension, right? <laughs> I, that, that's one of the most puzzling fiascos of local sports in my lifetime is the fact that that little Richard hung on for eight years, had a winning season in the Big Ten once. His, uh, I mean, how badly do you have to fail? 
<laughs> well, his ex one of his extensions to tie in the, the, the union workers on campus, which I am one, um, not in athletics anymore, but I'm still a union employee. We went to the negotiating table, and things got hot and heavy with <laughs> President Kaler at the time. Yeah. You want to talk about jackasses and elitists. Yeah. <laughs> His name is Kaler. Um, somebody stated to him that it will cost him less to give the people, <laughs> the union people raises, than the contract extension that you just okay for Richard, <laughs> for little Richard. And he yeah. <laughs> arrogantly said, fine, give those people that and not a penny more. <laughs> <laughs> Not a penny more, right? That's great. Yeah, there's a that's known as a, a grudging acceptance. It's like because somebody stated what we're asking for is less than what you just gave the basketball coach. <laughs> so it's so painful. Yeah, I know. Now. I know your stance on disbanding college athletes. College well, right, you, you heard me say it. Yeah. I'm still yeah. waiting for that magic day to happen. If we, were, we may not be that far away these days. Well, I, I my, hope My so. thoughts I, are the major sports of football and basketball and maybe even hockey solely should be funded by professional sports because that's their breeding ground. Yep, yeah, I, I agree there. If, if you're going to have them, right. Now the the other minor sports or non-revenue sports or Olympic sports, you know, the, the the term changes every time. Somebody needs to come up with a new term to make it uh, more palatable to the masses. Um, I you know think what? What, what, what I can't ex what I can't accept though, JB, is the fact that you've got you've got um, athletes, scholarship athletes, who. Uh, will get perks that real students don't get. That's 100% true, because I used to give kids a 5000 no, no matter if there were a scholarship or a walk-on, a $5,000 war stroke every year. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just, That's just a wardrobe. Yeah, Not counting I, I, the, the tutoring. The Yeah, the tutoring. Uh, where's the tutoring? Where's that tutor for kids who are... Who are you know, good good students, but having problems somewhere along the line, and could actually use a tutor, and who actually are uh, need to graduate. Well, Where's their tutor? Where's their personal chef? <laughs> That's yeah. It's insane. Chef. It's nuts. What well, the just the priorities that we have on on something this frivolous. Well, there's there's no private chef. There is a cafeteria, which is actually you know any student that has a Meal plan can right. eat there, yeah, but it, but it, they don't. No, they actually w we actually would have students who were smart enough to realize. Yeah, why don't I go eat over there? Because the athletes eat a little bit better than we do. You know that that's the great thing about the U is, is <laughs> if, if there's any university students listening, you know, you can you, like like the, the uh, I know back in the day the the greatest cafeteria there. There were all these cafeterias on campus, mm -hmm. but the but the cafeteria in the basement of the uh, of the medical school, I mean that that was first rate. You know, that, they, and I they, hear that too. 
there they carve your they carve your roast beef or your turkey, you know, and and whereas opposed to the other cafeterias, it's like a spongy sort of sort of gelatinous thing that's you know already sliced into paper thin portions. Yeah, so I guess you're right, but people just don't know about it so right. much. And and the tutoring, if you can get yourself as a learning disabled, you can get yeah. the same tutoring. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that would have been me. <laughs> yeah, would have been me too. But that didn't exist back then. But yeah. now, which I tried to get my son to do because he does, you know, he had a learning disability, mm. but he was too stubborn. He didn't want the label. So, because oh, yeah. there not only there's tutoring, but there's also financial aid. For so, oh yeah, yeah. And I couldn't get him when he went to Duluth to get him to understand that, you know, here are some perks that you can, you know, grasp and not have to be an athlete to do to do so. <clears throat> uh, uh, just beyond the, the the funding, what other uh, and the perks? What other the problems do you have with college athletics? It's just the the emphasis, you know, of it, um, and the fact that it is it was the University of Minnesota was established as a, a school of higher education, not as a school of higher athleticism, and you know, and I, well, I've seen too much, you know. I mean, I was there the day of the uh, of the slaughter of the Ohio State basketball players, 1970, I think it was, but I was there and I saw that. And that, that's always going to stick with me, you know, with such such a horrible thing. And Bill Musselman never paid a price for that at all. Well, neither did the Winfrey, you know, right. who were very deeply involved with beating up those kids. And and it, to me, that it just kind of drove home just how, how unfortunate and how distorted the emphasis was on, on, on you know, on, on the athletic program at, at the expense. At the expense of, of higher education. Well, here's the thing that I have witnessed about that. It's kind of a twist. Higher education is now using athletics to attract better students for, you know, those students who would help in research and those other things. So that's why they fight to have the basketball team on TV and the football team on TV because they hope to attract I, that I, kid I to see that that commercial that they run about yeah. the academics during the game. Well, everybody has that commercial, but right. um, I, I can't accept the, the, the fact that some, some future Nobel Prize winner is going to go to the U because their, their, uh, their football team looks like they might break even this year. I, I just, or win everything. I just, I can't, I just, it I, seems bizarre to me. And I, look, I, I spent 10 years on that campus. I spent 10 years going to school on the University of Minnesota campus. So perhaps, you know, perhaps I, I just was there too long and I, and I, I saw for too many years the, the failures of the athletic program. Not that I really cared, but... I saw how it was prioritized over education, even though it's just not why people... I've, I've, I've never known anyone 
who went to the University of Minnesota because they liked their football team. If anyone did, they probably flunked out because <laughs> that's so stupid. Um, but, I mean, I could be wrong, but it just, it just seems pretty bizarre to me. Well, here's one stat now. The athletes are now, and that's, you know, this is, as a whole, the athletes now graduate higher than the general populace. Well, you know, and I and I believe that because for one thing, the athletes, you know, they don't they don't run into the financial issues that that students have that oftentimes force them, you know, out of there. They don't wind up leaving there, you know, in two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in debt. Um, the, and, the walk-ons do, and, and they get a, and they there's get a heck of a lot more walk-ons than there are. You know, when you yeah. talk about basketball and football, no. But when you talk about the other sports where baseball only has 11 sure. scholarships and 35 players and softball has 12 scholarships and 24 uh-huh. players, yeah, there's there's people who are walking out with a lot of debt. Oh, yeah. Well, sure. I mean, um, uh, my my oldest son went to law school, and, you know, he's, he's still paying off his debt. He, of course... He, I didn't. I didn't force him to go to to go to to get a law degree from NYU, <laughs> which was kind of expensive, and I certainly didn't have the money to right. finance that. Um, but it's it's that's just another just another machine that. that well, yeah, colleges. People. Colleges yeah. themselves are just a money printing machine. That, as and I the w- other thing, the other thing, you know, I mean, look, I never got a degree, um, and. It was, there were a lot of reasons, but certainly one of them was the fact that I, that, that I have ADHD and I couldn't learn anything in a classroom. I suspect that if I had uh, been the quarterback of the football team, or for that matter, uh, any scholarship player who they wanted to come back, I suspect I probably would have gotten some help in, in cutting some corners and learning how to deal with that. But the average student doesn't, but, you know, just, just like, you know, what you're saying about your son average student doesn't doesn't get that help so there are an awful lot of advantages for those for those students who who, who can get that help uh, and I don't know that it reflects badly on anyone who doesn't get a degree versus people who do get a degree I'm, I mean I'm happy that they graduate but yeah it's uh, in graduating in four years I don't know how anyone could do that let alone ask them. Well, and that's the other thing about college. You know, you, you stated that you didn't graduate. It took me six years to get out of that place. Oh, yeah, it would have taken me at least that. Um, they're doing it in four years now because there's less expectation on credit hours and whatnot. It was 215 for me, and it's now like 145. Really? That's yeah. interesting because I, I know it was for me, and I went, you know, I went to college in the early 70s. Uh, it was, uh, I think it was uh, 180 credits. And after four years, I believe I had something like 78. <laughs> so I was a little ways away from from it. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, I guess things have changed. But see, when I went to college at the U, you had to have a, a you had to have the, the language, you had to satisfy the language requirement. And unfortunately for me, it was the foreign language. Right. Which and I couldn't, and I was never going to learn how to speak, you know, 
right. to be more than about three words in any language because you would have to sit in the classroom. And I could sit in the classroom for a thousand hours and not learn anything. That's what happens when you have ADHD. You just can't, you can't focus on that thing. No, I think maybe that's, maybe they, they I think you can get around that now. So I, I do think some things like that have changed. Yeah, well, you can substitute foreign language by taking more math. Then you can substitute take your math by taking like uh, reasoning or some something like that. Reasoning. Yeah. Well, there's that, there's a skill that won't help you much. <laughs> not not these days, but it's good to know because math wouldn't have done it for me either. Right. What I knew how to do was write. If it, writing wasn't involved, I probably wasn't doing math. But then I never tried. To. I figured out very early, hey, if I, if I keep going to these classes that I'm supposed to go to in order to get a degree, I'm going to walk out. You know, and I, I think I'd rather just stay here than go to Vietnam for a while. Well, it wasn't reasoning. It was philosophy. That's philosophy, I, yeah. That's right. Well, that is reasoning, sure, right. in many ways. That's how I got around it. Because I sucked at math, and there was no way I was going to learn a foreign language. But the other thing that... You know, I had students that worked for me, and they would be out in four years or less because they would show up with college credits. Mm-hmm. My uh, adopted daughter, who was finishing up her senior year, she showed up to college with a four credit, college credit. Yeah. High school. Yeah. You know, and you're already talking about the loads and lessons of like 145, 150, and then they show up with anywhere from five to 20 college credits already it just yeah you know so but i do remember the days when football would graduate seven percent 13 percent you know you talk right. about two three guys who you know even if they didn't play football they were going to graduate college well there was always in the, in the basketball team you know it was always that that kid at the end of the bench who yeah. was there to inflate the gpa after. right <laughs> You, you don't need those kids anymore. Yeah, yeah I mean, too bad. I mean, it was kind of a nice tradition, wasn't it? Right. <laughs> I, I know some of those kids. But um, now they're graduating at 70% football and 80% from basketball. You know, which is great. But it's, well, it's, it's part of the college sham itself that they want right. you in and out in four years because there's a... They want to continue to deepen their pockets by having more and more and more and more kids come to college. When uh, when I was at the U, I I remember there was one it was kind of right on the edge there of probably just being kicked out of school and, and getting being one A and, and going to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. You know the way the Army works at at a at 116 pounds, I probably would have been put in the front line even though I could have edited and written the, the entire uh, the entire uh, uh, Armed Forces newspaper and all that stuff. Of course, they wouldn't have wanted me to do that because I, I would be a troublemaker. Right. <laughs> so uh, so I, I picked up an extra couple of credits uh, by by going to a class that I figured probably wouldn't be too challenging um, because I knew all the athletes took the course, and that, that of course, was the... Uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, African-American, African, what was it called? African-American Studies, I think is what it was. 
So, um, as was my usual practice for any class, I, I never went to the class unless there was a quiz that day or the final test. Um, but I, but it was time. It was time for the mid-quarter. You know, in those days, you'd have a mid-quarter test and a final test. And I had no idea where the class was. So I figured I'd, I'd better find it. But, and I, so I figured I would go to the class on the, the, uh, the, uh, the day before the mid-quarter test. Probably two days before, but you know, the one class before then. And uh, so I showed up, and there were like, there were like, uh, you know, like 18 black guys who were mostly about five eight or six eight, six nine. You know, or or that, or they weighed 320 pounds and could lift me with their with their toenails. And uh, uh, and uh, so they passed around this this sheet, and there were questions on the sheet and answers and I, I said to the guy next to me I said uh, I said well what's what well, is this this is like to help us study for the test he said no no that is the test now I don't mean to besmirch any anyone but that that seemed to me to be uh, kind of a scheme right well you know North Carolina had that scandal and, and their defense was, well, anybody could take the class. Right. Well, see, here it was. I could take the class. I was just the only non-athlete who took it because obviously all the athletes were, that, you know, were told, hey, take this class, you know. You won't have any problems with this one. I, uh, I didn't, well, by the time I got there, the, the African-American studies was a le- legit um, yeah, and then this this was like 1970. Right. Well, this was 10, 12 years later, and it was a legit degree program, and a yeah. lot harder. But yeah, I, I took, believe that. For sure, I took yeah. a rate training course taught by the strength and conditioning coach for the football pro- football program, and was told not to. <laughs> came the first day and was told, <laughs> "Don't show up again until the last day of the class." <laughs> <laughs> And I took it because I actually wanted to, you know, build a little muscle mass and, and get in shape. <laughs> was told not to come back. So that was your ulterior motive. <laughs> I would just be getting in the way. <laughs> me, and uh, couple, that's... me and a couple other student managers who took the course. We were told to take the course because they needed regular students, but then told not to come back again. <laughs> it's like, kind of a mixed message sort it's like, of thing, wasn't hey, it? Hey, we, we actually wanted to get a workout in. You know, he could have told us come back after the class and come and lift weights or something when the room is open. You know, there's no team in there or something. But it was, you know, it's like, and don't come back until <laughs> until the final. And How many just, times have I been told that? But I was just told don't come back. <laughs> it was. And we discussed the questions the day of the final. We discussed the questions on the final, and then took the final. Yeah, well, <laughs> see that there is that. Yeah. Right. It was like, not that there's anything wrong oh, with it. It's like, oh man, are you, are you kidding? So, it it does happen. So. Yeah, I, I, things, think, I know. Th- I know things have changed. I, right. I just I hate. I just hate the emphasis, you know. 
J. B. It's my name, and f***ing up motherfuckers is my game. I am Negro, Black, African American, Black, Black, Black. Django. J. B. Damn, Dolomite. Great card in heaven, you know. J. B. Our great Negro sex machine.